Hope you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7. As you turn to Mark 7, I want to remind you of the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, because they're going to be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, because they will receive mercy. And blessed are the, the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that a main theme of the previous sections of Mark has been the danger of empty outward religion. We've heard the warning that we can be outwardly religious and yet have hearts that are far from God. Outwardly clean, but inwardly defiled. Now let me say this. I wondered this week if I had been clear about this. That religion is not bad. Religious practices aren't inherently wrong. In fact, the Bible even encourages and commands a lot of things that the world would perceive as religious. I mean, we're here, aren't we? We gather week in and week out, and to most of the world, the fact that we come together, this is what? It's an act of religion. We think of it a little differently, but it, it is that. Religion, acts of service to God, showing our commitment to God through the way we live, it's not a bad thing. In many respects, it's commanded. But what the Bible's clear about is that there's a form of religion, a reliance on religion, that says something about our hearts. And what we've seen over and over in the Gospel of Mark is that the nation of Israel, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, they had this reliance on religion. And so Jesus spent time warning them about their hypocrisy. We could hear the contrast between their way of life and what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount as he describes what it means to be a person of faith. Think about the contrast to phrases like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek they will inherit the earth. Keep that in your mind for a second. And now listen to the way Jesus describes the religious community of his day. He says, beware scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers they will receive their condemnation. Just one of the main times when Jesus points out the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
how they carried themselves, how they thought themselves better than most and looked down on those who they thought as less. You hear that contrast? From what Jesus says, the people of God are like, meek, merciful, poor in spirit. And these guys who puff themselves up with their ability to adhere to the traditions of the elders. What I like about that passage in Luke chapter 20 is he points out the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. And then as we move into chapter 21, it says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. It's that great example of sacrifice and true faith. But it's also a reminder of the kind of heart that God looks at, right? The kind of heart that God seeks. And this is what we're going to see as we come to Mark chapter 7 this morning. That Jesus accepts those who come to him in humble faith. There's more. What we also see in this text is a foreshadowing of the reality that Jesus came to save not only the Jews, but to make the offer of salvation to all people. So mercy and forgiveness are available to all people of every nation. It's only reserved for those who come in humble faith. So think about the last couple of weeks in Mark, the last couple of sections. We've talked a lot about what it means to be clean and unclean, defiled and undefiled. And all these things, they're reminders that up to this point in the story of the plan of God, he's had a focus on a particular people. He had the the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And they were called to live these ways with clean and unclean, defiled and unfiled, these laws and these rituals. But as we come to this point, we're starting to see this transition. So on the heels of this interaction with the Pharisees, dealing with things of the law, where he declared all foods clean, we're going to see Jesus in an, interacting with a Gentile woman. And we'll be reminded that all who come to him in faith will be forgiven. All who come to him in humility will be saved. And so while we're not going to talk specifically about the scribes and the Pharisees in our passage this morning, I just want to just encourage you to have them in your head. This is part of the context. And if we miss this, then we miss a lot of what the passage tells us. The previous story was about people who tried to earn their salvation through their lineage and their religion. This story is about a Gentile pagan woman who doesn't keep the law and would be considered by all those in Israel unclean. But she's the one who receives mercy because of her humble faith. It's a fantastic passage. I'm excited to be in it with you this morning. So Mark chapter 7, we're going to read verses 24 through 30, and then consider it together. Hear the word of God. From there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately... 
A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You ask that God would add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. So we come to a story that you may not be real familiar with. Maybe not as familiar as you were with some of the other stories we've considered to mark the feeding of the 5,000, the calming of the sea. This one's a little more obscure. It doesn't get a lot of play in Sunday school classes. It is a miracle story. But maybe you notice the miracle is not really the main focus. It's incredible. Jesus casts a demon out of a girl. He's not even near her when it happens. He speaks and it's done. Unbelievable. But not really the main point of the text. This is really a story about faith and about the reach of salvation. It's a a living illustration for us that mercy is available to all who come to Jesus in humility and faith. As we come to the text, it is important to remember that, and hopefully you remember this for those of you who have been with us as we've worked our way through Mark, for a couple of chapters now, Jesus has been trying to get away. He's been trying to find a place to rest. So remember that, The crowds were around Jesus. His disciples came back from this mission, their first missions trip. Jesus says, come with me, let's get away. They get in a boat and they sail to a desolate place. It was desolate, but it was not unpopulated. By the time they got there, the crowds had assembled 5,000 in number. They did not get the rest they were seeking. Remember, Jesus feeds the 5,000. After that, we're told that they sail across the sea again. And as soon as they arrive on the shore, Mark uses that word he loves. Immediately when they arrive, the crowds are all around them. No rest for the weary. Bombarded by people. And bombarded by religious leaders eager for debate. What we see this morning is that Jesus, again, is heading away with his disciples. We know his disciples are with them because of the, the account recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus and his disciples get away and they go to a place that he's almost guaranteed not to be followed. Verse 24, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Over the last two weeks, we've talked a lot about the Jewish emphasis on ritual purity, clean and unclean foods, defilement and avoidance of defilement. I don't think this is a coincidence. I know it's not. This is an inspired word of God. That after Jesus' clear teaching on the true nature of defilement, that defilement is internal and external, what does Jesus do? 
he takes his disciples and he goes into the heart of pagan Gentile land. Perhaps to teach his disciples a new time has come. We are going to think differently about defilements, clean and unclean. We're told they go to Tyre and Sidon. If you want to know where that is, maybe that's the way you, you think about um, Geographically, it's about 25 miles northwest of the region of Galilee. It's right along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. If you want to know what Tyre and Sodom are about, it's a region known for its long history of paganism, idolatry, and oppression against the people of God. So if you read through your Old Testament, if you've read through it earlier this year, these are cities, these are names that may sound familiar. They come up time and time again, some of the greatest enemies of God come from this region, these cities of Tyre and Sidon. You can read in, in the book of Isaiah, God's pronouncements against Tyre and Sidon, that they will get the judgment of God that they deserve. Seems like an odd place for Jesus to head for a retreat. But no doubt it's purposeful. For starters, it's a place where We would expect he would not be as well known. Maybe he could find the rest he was seeking. The time with his disciples to teach them. Remember, the disciples in the previous paragraphs have been described several ways. Slow to hear. Men of hard hearts. He's perhaps pulling them away to, to pour in to them, to teach them. Maybe it's just one big object lesson. Last week, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. I think there's a sense in which Jesus is now showing his disciples all people can be clean. The wall of separation between Jew and Gentiles is about to be removed. So Jesus goes into this Gentile region, but we must not think that he's going to preach and proclaim his message to the Gentiles. That doesn't happen yet. In fact, it never happens this side of the cross for Jesus. He's not a preacher to the Gentiles. He's getting away. We're told that he enters a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet, verse 24, he could not be hidden. Michelle and I were talking about this verse yesterday, and we agree that this is the story of quarantine life with three kids. I want to go somewhere where no one knows where I am, and yet we cannot be hidden, even in the bathroom. You cannot be hidden. Jesus could not be hidden. Even in a pagan land where he was not as well known, he could not hide. The text says that he wanted to get away. But of course, Jesus knew what would happen. And he has a plan to use this to teach an important truth. He's in this house in Tyre. And we're told that immediately... A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard about Jesus and came and fell down at his feet. Immediately, this is Mark's word. No sooner had they arrived when this woman shows up and begins pleading with Jesus. I have a little girl who is possessed by a demon. Would you help? A desperate mother. And we see her desperation in her posture. It says that she comes and she falls down on the ground. It's a posture we've only seen one other time in the Gospel of Mark. I'll give you five seconds to try to remember when it was. 
It happened earlier in the book when a ruler of the synagogue had a sick child. And he comes to Jesus and prostrates himself before Jesus, begging that his daughter would be restored. Now this posture conveys a couple things. One, respect for who Jesus is, but probably most significantly in this scene, a sign of desperation. It's a woman who's pleading for the life of her child. If you're a parent, put yourself in her shoes. A, a little girl, Mark says, who's possessed. She's not herself. She's doing bizarre things. She's causing harm to herself and to others. You think about your little girl, your child who you've loved and nurtured, and then something changes. But now she hears this one has come who may be able to help. So she goes and she lays herself out before him, pleading with him for the life of her child. We have other miracle stories like this where the pleading happens, Jesus recognizes the faith, and the person is healed. But like I said, the miracle is not actually the main point of this text. Look at the the additional information we get in verse 26. Mark says this. And it seems a bit out of place if you're just reading the story. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So the story's going. She's begging already. And then Mark kind of gives us this parenthesis. Now remember who she is. A Gentile woman. And not only a Gentile, but she's from Syria, Phoenicia. She's a Syrophoenician. What's that? This is one of the most pagan places known for their oppression of the people of God. In terms of the kind of person who should get a hearing before a Jewish teacher, three strikes, you're out. You're a woman in a male-dominated society. You're from a heathen nation. You're a Gentile. Mark gives us these details, and I think they're supposed to stand in stark contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees of the previous section. These were men with proper lineage who kept the law and kept themselves clean. But they would never bow before Jesus. They would never admit their need for him. They didn't perceive they had a need. But now there's this woman. In regards to Jewish credentials, she has none. But she does know she has a need. And she believes that Jesus can help. So she falls face down before him with desperate pleading. Mark says she begged him to cast the demon out. And that verb tense, it's, it indicates ongoing, continual begging. And that's very consistent with the way Matthew tells the story. There's, a, there's a, another aspect of the story that Mark doesn't tell us, but in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that this woman comes, and for a time, Jesus ignores her completely. She's there begging and pleading, and Jesus is just going about his way. And his disciples come to Jesus and say, won't you do something with her? And it's still a bit later before Jesus interacts with her. We see this persistent begging. But Jesus does respond. We see his response in verse 27. 
Think in your mind. You've already heard the text, but think, how do you think Jesus is going to respond? What, what kind of thing do you expect him to say? Probably not this. He tells this woman begging for the life of her child, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I said this isn't a story that gets a lot of play in Sunday school classes, and this is why. <laughs> What's going on here? It's fair to say that at best, it's an odd response. It's argued by some that it's offensive and rude and shows an ugly side of Christ. Either way, it's a response that should slow us down and force us to ask some questions. What's Jesus saying? What does he mean that the children should be fed first and their bread should be thrown to the dogs? And what in the world does it have to do with a woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon? Let's just think about it for a minute. Where, what do we know about these phrases and the way these phrases have generally been used? Who are the children? Well, throughout the scriptures, God is known as Father, and up to this point, his children were the Jews, the nation of Israel. So we think of passages like Isaiah 1, uh, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. This is how Jesus describes the nation of Israel. These are my children. God has formed a people. They were his, and to the exclusion of other nations. God had chosen a people for himself, and they were the recipients of his care and of his blessing. And this is what Jesus is saying here. The children are the ones who get the priority. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children are the Jews, the nation of Israel, who are the dogs. We know that it was not uncommon for the Jewish people to refer to foreign nations to Gentile nations as dogs. Dogs were unclean animals. The nations were unclean peoples. They were dogs. And it's true that it was often a pejorative term. We are the people of God. They are the dogs. Which brings up the question, is Jesus being hateful towards this woman? Is he insulting her? It's a fair question, isn't it? Well, let's say this first. It's a good hermeneutics lesson. How do we read our Bibles? The Bible is clear that Jesus is the sinless son of God, that he's blameless. And let's also acknowledge this. If he was sinning against this woman, if Jesus is a sinner like us, then he cannot be of any help to this woman and he cannot be of any help to us. So let's believe the scriptures. Jesus never sinned. He's blameless. So what else could this mean? What else could he be doing here? Well, it is worth noting that there are different words used in the Greek language for dogs. And depending on what translation you have, it may actually say little dogs. And the word little is not there in the original language, but it's a way the translators are trying to say, this isn't the normal way this word was used. There was a word for wild dogs that roamed the street and ate garbage. 
That one's used a lot to refer to Gentiles and probably often sinfully. Jesus uses the word that's more commonly used for a household pet, family dog. Okay, but he's still calling her a dog. Well, the point is not insult. The point is an illustration of priority. Jesus is focusing attention on the priority of the nation of Israel. And he uses terms that, quite honestly, she would have been familiar with. Israel referred to themselves as the children of God, and those outside of Israel, they knew what they were called. Jesus uses these categories to express a parable, to make a point. You've come to me asking for my help. Don't you know that children are given priority over the family dog? If you live in a house where the dog gets fed to the exclusion of the children, talk to me afterwards. Things are out of balance, right? We can get you help. <laughs> the kids get the priority. Let the children be fed first. Let me just back off and just try to plainly say what Jesus is expressing here. Jesus was sent by God into the world. He was the fulfillment of the promises made to his people. And Jesus came first as the long-awaited promised Messiah of the Jewish people. And if you read of the ministry of Jesus, you will see that over and over he makes this clear. That he came for Israel. In the parallel passage to this one, the same story told in the Gospel of Mark. When the disciples come and say, won't you do something with this woman? Jesus tells them, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, when Jesus sends out his disciples on that first missions trip, he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather you go to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus came and his first priority in coming was to the Jewish people. He was sent to the Jews first. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. Also to the Greek. If you want to deep dive into this, you want to think about this more, go and read Romans 9 to 11 this afternoon. Kind of a fun conversation about that one later. But it expresses who Jesus came to first and also what has changed. But the scriptures are clear. He came first to reveal himself to the Jews and to call them to repentance. We know this also, don't we, as we look back, that while he came to them, they also rejected him. He came unto his own and his own people did not receive him. They didn't recognize him as the one who came to save him. And in the end, they sent him to the cross to be killed. And it's at the cross where something changes. The cross marks the formal rejection of Jesus by the people who he came for. The dividing wall of hostility, Paul says, was broken down. After the resurrection of Christ, the disciples are told to take the nation, the, the gospel message to all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And this was part of God's plan, that through the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the gospel will be taken to the world fulfilling the promise made to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
That was a little theological rabbit trail, wasn't it? <laughs> it's important to recognize this order. Jesus came to his people, had been promised to the Jewish nation. They rejected him, and God used their rejection as the means by which the gospel was taken to all. Jesus tells this woman, I've come to feed the people of Israel. I've come to feed the people of God. If we think about our context of Mark, again, Jesus has said, I've come as the true bread. Let the children be fed first. It's not right to take this bread and give it to the dogs. He's expressing the priority of his ministry. But let's not forget the emotion of the scene. Here's this woman. Now let's take off our theological hats for a second and put back on just the the parent hat. This woman laying at the feet of Jesus, begging for the life of her child. She's come to the one person she believes can help. She's down on the ground before him begging and pleading. And now he gives her an answer about the priority of children. How do you expect she will respond? How would you respond? I think we can all imagine how we might respond in her situation. Perhaps with anger, deep offense, maybe with shouts of desperation or insult. I can understand and empathize with her if she responded in any of those ways. That's not what happens. Instead, we see that she acknowledges his point and does not argue with it. She accepts it as valid and true. She does not argue against the priority of the children. She doubles down. Verse 28. She answered, yes, Lord, I agree. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't dispute what he's saying. It's so she understands more fully who she is and more fully what he's doing than anyone else up to this point. More fully than the Pharisees, even more fully than Jesus' own disciples. She concedes, you are the one who has come for the people of Israel. She does not dispute the priority of the Jews, the special blessing to Israel. She doesn't argue that she's not among the dogs. But she believes that Jesus can help her. And that even if she can eat from the crumbs of the table, that will be enough. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Or to say it in my own words, I'm not asking to sit at the table. You don't have to call me your child. All I'm asking is for the full benefit of a dog. What I want you to see, church, if you don't see anything else this morning, don't miss this. Unflinching, humble faith. She recognizes that she is not worthy. She acknowledges her place and her position. She knows that she does not deserve anything. But she also has an unwavering belief that Jesus can help. I'll say again, it's as if she understood the plan of God better than most. Yes, Jesus came for the Jews first, but his coming does not only benefit them. 
Jesus came and he died so anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus saves all who come to him in humble faith, Jew or Gentile, and this has always been the case. That anyone who turns to God in humble faith will be saved. Jesus came to fulfill the promise to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Long before the incarnation of Christ, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. That's too light of a thing. That's not enough. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I love that. This was the plan of God. He had his chosen people, the nation of Israel. He says, that's not enough. I want the message of salvation to go to all. And it will. And I'm not saying that the woman understood all of that. But here's what we know for sure. She had faith that far exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. She didn't stand against Jesus, and she was not offended by the way he classified her. How often have you shared the gospel with someone who bristled that they would be called a sinner? Maybe that was you. This woman recognizes herself for who she is, undeserving and unworthy, just like we are. She knew who she was, yet she also believed that even a crumb from the table of Jesus was sufficient. Give me some crumbs and that will be enough. And isn't this how we should approach Christ? There's none of us who deserve anything from him. We are sinners and enemies, rebels from the start, and we have no reason to receive anything from the hand of God. But despite that, the scriptures say that he responds to all those who come to him in humble repentance and faith. And we see a picture of that here. A woman with humble, unflinching faith. And we also see that Jesus responds to her faith with mercy. Verse 29. He said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went back home, and she found her daughter lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Can I encourage you one more time to see the contrast between how the people of Israel had received Christ? The religious leaders despised him and mocked him and are already expressing their desire to kill him. His own disciples who have seen everything and heard everything are still slow to hear and struggle with hardness of heart. But now here's this woman, a Gentile woman from one of the most pagan nations, and she's the one who sees him most clearly. Mark doesn't explicitly say anything about her faith. But do you notice what Jesus said? He said, for this statement. Because of this, because you have seen things so clearly, you have trusted. Go home. Mark implicitly, he implies her faith. Matthew says it clearly. Matthew 15, 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Jesus says that this unclean Gentile woman is a person of great faith. Don't miss the contrast. 
with the ungrateful response of the Jews, the pompous and proud Pharisees, even the disciples in their hardness of heart and slowness to hear. This is the kind of person that Jesus seeks. Maybe as you've heard the story, you're reminded as I was of the story of the Roman centurion recorded in Matthew chapter 8. It's a very similar story. And that story, a Roman centurion, an officer of Rome, comes to Jesus, asking Jesus to work on behalf of his servant who is paralyzed and suffering. In that story, Jesus responds to him, it seems rather quickly, and says, I'll go with you. Let's go to your house and I will see your servant. Do you remember what the centurion said? It's recorded in Matthew 8, verse 8. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word. My servant will be healed. Jesus is ready to go. And doesn't that seem optimal? Let's take the healer to the place where healing is needed. This man says, I have faith that that's not necessary. He believed in the power of Jesus. You don't need to come. Listen to Jesus' response. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's us, Gentile believers. He says, many will come from all over and sit at the table of Abraham. While sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Not all who are of Israel are true Israel. Not all who are ethnically Jews will be eternally saved. But Jesus responds to all those who come to him in humble faith. Paul describes in Romans 11, some branches being broke off and other branches being grafted in. By God's mercy, we can count ourselves among those grafted in we have turned to him in humble faith. Both of these accounts, both of the Roman centurion and this woman in Mark 7, are evidence that while Jesus was sent to the Jews, his salvation is available to all who repent and believe. Jesus responds to the faith of Gentiles. That's the heart of the text. But I'm probably remiss if I don't point out the miracle. <laughs> there is a miracle here, the power of Jesus on display he doesn't go to where the girl is. He doesn't see her or touch her. He simply says that she is free and she is. We see his authority over evil, his power. He tells the woman, go your way. And I think here we see another demonstration of her faith. I wonder if you would go. Or I wonder if you'd grab his arm and say, no, you have to come. I'm not letting you out of my sight until I know she's free. But she has faith. He tells her to go, and in faith, she leaves. Maybe not knowing that she'll ever see him again, she believes she can leave and go home and believe what he has said. I wonder if this is the kind of faith we have. Jesus says, go. 
trust me. You can trust me. You can trust me. Are we willing to walk away believing that what he says is true? We can trust him. And can you imagine the joy of this woman when she arrived home? How long she must have held her daughter and wept. I love thinking about these healing stories. How one act by Jesus changed everything for them. And isn't this our story as well? That because of his mercy, everything has changed. Because he lives, we have the hope of resurrection. The heart of this text is a humble, persistent faith. I don't think we do the text justice if we don't back up and see the contrast. Once again, don't want you to miss this. The Pharisees and the scribes believe that salvation is found through outward purity, but purity is a matter of the heart. Jesus makes it clear that purity is not about outward religion. Salvation cannot be earned by what we do. It's only available to those who trust in him by faith. And salvation is not only for a special class. It is available to all. All foods are clean. That's what we saw last week. Today, all people can be clean. Salvation is for all who come to Jesus regardless of ethnicity or law-keeping. And this is the plan of God that through Israel's unbelief, the gospel would go to all nations. I can't help but read just a portion of Romans chapter 11 for you. We're almost done. Paul says, For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned to all disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. This is his plan of salvation so that we could be saved. But we must come to him in humble faith. So that those of us who were born as dogs can be called children. And if you're here and this is your story, that Jesus has received you as a dog and called you his child, the question we have to answer before we end is, how then should we live? Hear this. Jesus saves us through humble faith and he calls us to continue to live lives of humility and faith. But the temptation is, after entering by faith, to live a life of pride and pompous religion. Remember the warning of Paul to the Galatians? He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We must continue to live as people who recognize who we are in relationship to God. We don't come in by faith and then become something. No, we must not be proud or pompous or We are called to obedience. We are called to faithfulness. We are called to acts of service. But we should long to maintain the kind of heart that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount that we read earlier. Hearts of meekness and mercy and purity 
and peace. May we be a people who remember who we were. We were dogs. We've not been saved by our works, but by Jesus. And now we have the joy of living humble, obedient lives. And we have the privilege of inviting others to come to the one who will receive anyone who turns to him in humble faith. Know then this, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 